Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Discover. When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. That means no waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. Real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Before we get on with today's episode, here's a chance for you to participate in something you've heard about in earlier episodes. We've been following a project called Behavior Change for Good, in which an all-star team of social scientists is running experiments to find the best ways to improve outcomes in health, education, and personal finance. Their first big experiment is called Step Up. It's meant to help people kickstart an exercise habit. It lasts one month. Participants will be nudged with text messages and incentivized with Amazon Cash The researchers are hoping to sign up a few hundred thousand participants. Their partner in this is 24-Hour Fitness, which has more than 400 gyms in 13 states. If you are a 24-Hour Fitness member and you want to sign up, we've got a special link for you. It's 24go.co slash freak. Again, that's 24go.co slash freak. If you participate in the experiment via that link, the researchers will be able to separate their data into freaks and non-freaks, and then we can report their findings. If you want to check out the Behavior Change for Good project to make sure they're legit, you can listen to our earlier episodes. They're called How to Launch a Behavior Change Revolution and Could Solving This One Problem Solve All the Others? Okay, thanks. Now on to today's episode. Back in early January, on a brutally cold weekend in Philadelphia, I attended the annual conference of the American Economic Association, which brings together more than 10,000 economists from around the world. It's always held in early January, often in a cold-weather city. Why? One theory is that they're economists, and that's when hotels and convention centers are cheap. The purpose of the AEA conference is for economists to present new research, to soak up the wisdom of their elders and encourage the ambitions of their juniors. Also, to drink, flirt, gossip, and hunt for better jobs. Economists, as you likely know from listening to the show, are a particular breed. For one thing, many of them are devoutly apolitical. But every now and again, especially when the political climate is as heated as it is these days, their apolitical tone is ruptured. That's what happened during one panel discussion. It was titled, quite benignly, Tax Reform. But it fell barely two weeks after President Trump signed into law one of the most sweeping and controversial tax laws in modern history. And the lead speaker on the panel was one of the chief architects of the new tax plan, the economist Kevin Hassett, who's chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. 
Also on the panel were three former CEA chairs, one Republican, Glenn Hubbard, who served under George W. Bush, and two Democrats, Austin Goolsbee and Jason Furman, both of whom chaired the CEA under Barack Obama. So things got pretty political pretty fast. There were a lot of eye rolls, a lot of exasperated groans. The new tax law has many changes, but the most prominent is a huge reduction in the corporate tax rate from 35 percent to 21 percent. President Obama had also wanted to cut the corporate tax rate, but he never pulled it off. So you might think the Democratic economists would have been pleased with at least that part of the new Trump tax law, but you'd be wrong. They had specific arguments as to why, but also, let's face it, everything with Trump's name on it is inherently contentious. I am guessing that tax policy is not your most favorite topic in the world, but in honor of our upcoming tax day, we thought we'd give the new law, the Freakonomics Radio Treatment, track down all four of the CEA chairmen from that panel for a robust debate. This will require two episodes. Today, we focus on sitting CEA chair Kevin Hassett. We'll hear why he thought such a drastic tax law was needed in the first place. So we had really kind of like a raging problem that required antibiotics of a tax reform. We'll hear some hardcore economic wonk speak. There's this thing called the capital deepening contribution to productivity growth. And Hassett tells us what it's like to work for President Trump. He will challenge you in ways that economists often are not ready for. And then next week, we will dissect the tax law with the former CEA chairman, Glenn Hubbard. To say it's a disaster seems over the top. Jason Furman. The core arguments the administration made over and over again were completely false. And Austin Goolsby. The entire stimulus that some people said, oh, this is unbelievably large, and how can we do something that would increase the deficit by $780 billion? I mean, come on, this is four times bigger than that. So put on your tax hat. That is all coming up right after this. From WNYC Studios, this is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. This is where it all happens, huh? The February day I visited Kevin Hassett in Washington, D.C. turned out to be as sunny and warm as Philadelphia had been gray and cold. Hassett works in the Eisenhower Executive Office Building next door to the White House. I was escorted down a long hallway. Beautiful library. Oh, this building is amazing. And into Hassett's quite grand office. He was wearing a cardigan that might best be described as avuncular. So if you would just first say your name and what you do. Sure, I'm Kevin Hassett. I'm the... 29th chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Very good. You still enjoy getting to say that? Yeah, yeah, especially the number. (laughs) There's something beautiful about the number 29. Uh Hassett was a bit bleary-eyed, as this was the day before the publication of an important book. There's uh, two things, really, coming out in one book. Uh, It's the Economic Report of the President, which is a letter written by President Trump or you know, president whoever in the past uh, that lays out his vision for 
how the economy is doing and how it could do better if we were to pursue his policies. And then there's the annual report of the Council of Economic Advisors, which is for us, I guess, eight chapters that are substantive and go into, you know, what we know about, you know, say, infrastructure investment or tax reform. The Trump White House, the most volatile and unusual White House in many generations, was relatively stable when I visited. This was a few weeks before the departure of Gary Cohn, head of the National Economic Council, reportedly over his objection to new tariffs on steel and aluminum. And those tariffs, it turned out, were just the beginning. This was also before Secretary of State Rex Tillerson was let go. Kevin Hassett, for his part, says he never had any designs on actually working in government. I became interested in doing campaigns, but not governing, Uh, uh because I didn't feel like I had the patience to... For, for government work. So how did he get here? Let's go back to the 2016 election when candidate Trump was promising big changes in Washington. It begins with bold new tax reform. Don't worry, they're going down, not up. They're going down. The idea was that lowering taxes, especially the corporate rate, would help job and wage growth. One of our greatest job creation measures is going to be our 15% business tax rate, down from the current 35% rate, a reduction of more than 40%. Campaigns are interesting. I think campaigns are when um, policy happens more than anything else, Hmm. because in a campaign, a candidate goes to America and says, here's what I'm going to do. Elect me and I'll do this. And it's all viable at that point. Well, then I mean, if, if can... he or she gets elected, then they pers- they try to do that. Yeah. Right. And, and, and so most of the time, if you look at governing, uh, it doesn't really get anywhere. Uh, but if you study the history of major policy changes, very often they happen right around a presidential election when somebody wins promising to do something right. and then they deliver because, you know, they have coattails. But Hassett hadn't worked on the Trump campaign or any campaign during the 2016 election. He was, however, a fixture in Republican economic circles. He got his Ph.D. in 1990 at the University of Pennsylvania. He went on to teach at Columbia, work at the Fed, do some consulting for Treasury, and take up residence at the American Enterprise Institute, a conservative think tank. Sort of like a university without having to teach, which was sort of optimal for my (laughs) utility function at Uh that time. Hassett, for the most part, held standard free market views in support of free trade, fiscal responsibility, and immigration, some of which ostensibly puts him in conflict with his current boss. He didn't have much of a public profile, except for having co-authored a book in 1999 called Dow 36,000. It suggested that the stock market, which was on a tear during the dot-com boom, would more than triple over the coming years. It didn't. Not by a long shot. Even today, after a long and remarkable bull run, the Dow Jones index is only at around 25,000. The book's bold prediction followed Hassett all the way to his Senate confirmation hearing for the CEA job. You wrote a book in 1999 about Dow 36,000. What happened? Uh, Sir, I I think that uh, one critic of mine uh, once looked at that book and called it a youthful indiscretion. And I think as youthful indiscretions go, it wasn't such a bad one. I think that the motivation of the book then was to make sure that people understood how important it was if you can be a long-run investor to invest in equities because they're a good investment in the long run. But Hassett has also had, throughout his career, a deep interest in tax policy, the relationship between tax policy and investment, 
how taxes affect low-income workers, the distributional impact of policies like carbon taxes and cap-and-trade, and a host of other questions that go directly to Washington policy debates. All this made him a valuable resource for Republicans running for high office. What happened was that Glenn Hubbard and Larry Lindsay um, were organizing a campaign team for President Bush, who was Governor Bush at the time, and they were going down to Austin and helping him put together a platform. Mm -hmm. And since all my friends were doing it, I decided to help them out. And so, I was now, were you friends with any Democratic? Aligned economists? Oh, or? lots. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. in fact, uh, you know, most economists are probably Democratic aligned. And so so the majority of my economist friends are Democrats, for sure. But, uh, you but my most frequent co-author, Alan Auerbach, is a right. well-known Democrat. And Austin Goolsby, I helped uh, I, with his dissertation when he was still in grad school at MIT. Oh, is that right? Uh, but so, so, so there are a whole bunch of us who have known each other for, for a very long time. But uh, I helped them. But then uh, John McCain asked to meet with me. Uh, and uh, basically no one would work for McCain or anybody else because everyone was so sure that President Bush was going to win. Then so, I guess everybody wants to work for a winner so they can get the job they want. But, well, the point is that my utility function is quite a bit different uh, from that of many people. And so the fact that if I worked for McCain and he lost... Uh, that the fact that that meant that I wouldn't get a government job had no value to me because I didn't want a government job. Uh -huh. I didn't want to, and so, and so I was, you know, honored to be policy director for McCain, and um, I didn't think that I, you know, I, I would ever work for the Bush administration, mm -hmm. and I didn't, you know, if they won, and so I didn't see, seem that there would be any personal cost from the blackballing everybody talked about right. back then if you work for somebody else. But I worked with McCain; it was lots of fun. And so I did five presidential campaigns, but I didn't work on the last one uh, because I was focused a whole, wholly on um, this project we had at the American Enterprise Institute called the Open Source Policy Center. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I decided to stay out of politics and just be a resource for gotcha. every campaign, left or right. The Open Source Policy Center, you can look it up at ospc.org, offers analytical tools to assess the impact of public policy proposals, including tax proposals. Anybody who wanted to figure out, you know, how to score their tax plan right. could send us an email and then we would help them use the, the interface online to, to score yeah. it. And, and that's, yeah, that's why, so I had exited politics, but then the, uh, the Trump team used our open source stuff quite, quite a lot. Uh, and then after President Trump was elected, then... Uh, then they approached me to do this job. Now, this job was unfilled, as I understand it, for about eight months. You didn't come on at the beginning of the administration, right? So I spoke with uh, most everybody, including the president, about taking the job pretty early in the process. Uh, but then once you, once you do that, if you're not in the first group of people that they rush through right at inauguration, then you get put into the normal Senate process. And the normal right. Senate process has been historically obstructionist uh, because, uh, you know, the Democrats have cloctured everybody and, you know, made it down to one or two people a week get confirmed. And I have all these friends who've been appointed to really senior positions that still haven't Mm. Had a confirmation vote or anything, and so so. Were you doing some CEA work or? Yeah, so so so. Uh, in fact, I think uh, Jason Furman and Austin Goolsby and and some of uh, my other friends who've been in this position before told me that um, once someone's voted out of committee, that it's pra standard practice for the CEA chair 
to work as a consultant at the White House, but not to you know, do any of the, like not sit in this fancy office or go give speeches as CEA chair. Hassett's nomination was supported by, among many others, both Austin Goolsbee and Jason Furman, the former Obama CEA chairs. The choice did rankle some populist elements of Trump's coalition, but the appointment finally went forward. This hearing will come to order. We will begin today's hearing. On June 6, 2017, Hassett sat before the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs for his confirmation hearing. Mr. Hassett has had a distinguished career in economics that includes positions in academia, government and policy. By a vote of 81 to 16, Kevin Hassett was confirmed as the 29th chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, which had been established by the Employment Act of 1946. The act required the White House to submit to Congress every year a full economic report. The CEA was set up to assist and advise the president in that process. And what made you decide that the time was right to finally try governance? I don't know. But I, I, I was. I did not uh, seek uh, the position when asked. I was honored, mm-hmm. and uh, decided maybe at this point in my career, it's a, it's something to do. Now, some people were um, wondering if there would indeed. So, first of all, the chairman of the CEA, your position was. I don't know if demoted is the right word, but lowered out of the cabinet. So it's no longer a cabinet position. I, I, it, historically, it hasn't always. been It was in the only cabinet. fairly recently, it, right? And, and I don't think uh, I, I don't think it should be in the cabinet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and here's why. Uh, what so so I think that what the forty six employment act that created the Council of Economic Advisors, what it intended was that there was a place in the White House where there are professional economists who understand how economics work, who want to see the evidence mm-hmm. you know before they have an opinion about whether this or that works. Now it is a political appointment, but if you're a political member of a cabinet, uh, then you know part of your job is probably just just whatever the team decides, then you become an advocate of that Mm. position. And I think that if you go back and look historically at the way CEA chairs have acted, then they've tended to talk about the objective economics of this or that and do so without hindrance of politics Mm -hmm. uh, often. Not always, but often. So anyway, so so if I were to redesign the CEA, uh, I wouldn't. I'd Mm. just leave it the way it was originally designed Mm. in 46. And and I would try to keep the CEA chair out of the cabinet. That said, the CEA chairperson's views on the economy rarely digress from the president's views, which makes sense since it's the president who picks the CEA chair. But that said... Hassett argues that the annual economic report provides a rare opportunity for economics to take center stage, if only briefly, in the political arena. I think that if you go back and look at the economic reports, that there have been a number of them that are very serious historic documents. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would think that the first one for President Kennedy comes to mind. In short, the American economy is in trouble. The most resourceful, industrialized country on earth ranks among the last in the rate of economic growth. For President Kennedy, we were coming off of the sort of hangover from the post-World War II boom and then wondering where are we going to go next. And then uh, for President Reagan, we had been, as really President Trump did, we had been through a number of years where we weren't in crisis anymore, but it seemed like we weren't growing so hot. My fellow Americans, in recent days, all of us have been swamped by a sea of economic statistics, some good, some bad and some just plain confusing. There are times when I think that the paper traffic that crosses my desk in a week could fill a big city phone book and then some. 
the first one for President Obama comes to mind. We start 2009 in the midst of a crisis unlike any we have seen in our lifetime. Um, if you think about the, the terrible financial crisis President Obama's team came in uh, during, and I think that each of those economic reports of the president had a lot of vision uh, that ended up, I think, being very useful for thinking about the trajectory of the mm -hmm. economy. But also, if I were a historian, I would want to go back right, and read right. what the president said ex ante mm -hmm. about what he was going to do. As Hassett and I were speaking in his office, the first copies of this year's economic report, the report to be released the very next day, were being delivered to his assistant. Later on, I took a look. President Trump, in his opening letter, was characteristically boosterish. The primary components driving my administration's pro-growth policy agenda, he wrote, tax cuts, tax reform, and smart deregulation have inspired enormous confidence in the economy and optimism that it will continue thriving. But the best is yet to come. How often do you see or meet with President Trump now in your role? I'm not supposed to talk about that, but I am seeing him tomorrow uh, <laughs> for the economic report of the president. Right. Um, yeah. I'll just say it this way, that when um, I, I uh, surveyed previous CEA chairs mm -hmm. about the job, and it's a very complicated job, there's not mm -hmm. an instruction list, uh, then um, the, I basically ended up with a list of things that I should demand to be confident that the CEA is in its normal place at the White House. Huh. There's a list of things. Yeah. Like um, being a part of the senior staff meeting with General Kelly and everybody in the mornings. Mm -hmm. So I had that list. And, th and then I was, so when I came in my first day of work, uh, I uh, sat down with Gary Cohn, uh, who runs NEC, to talk about day-to-day -day life. And um, before I even said anything, he said, well, I've been thinking about you know, your job, and here's like the eight things I expect of you, and it was everything on my list. Uh -huh. So he had probably talked to similar people, <laughs> but, but there was never any dispute or fighting or anything or redefinition. So I think that the demotion from the cabinet thing is a sensible move, gotcha. and, and it hasn't influenced our day-to-day -day life here so we should infer that you have a lot of access to and that your voice is heard in economic policy regularly, which mm -hmm. is what one would expect of the head of the CEA. Let me ask you this. This president is obviously unusual in a lot of ways. And one way in which he was deemed unusual uh, among academic economists, um, or at least the perception that I, I gathered, was that academic economists felt that he was not an empiricist in the way that um, some, some presidents are. Um, president Obama was famous for enjoying um, economic analysis and dissecting it with the economists uh, on his staff. This president, the perception is at least that he's more of an intuitionist, uh, that he's, he comes from a business background and therefore is probably l more likely to engage with uh, a, a kind of um, I idea of what success is as opposed to base something on purely empirical research. So I'd love for you to talk about that gap. Maybe the gap is much smaller than I've just described it, but I'm really curious to know the president's appetite for, interest in, and ability to uh, uh, act on, especially change his mind in response to academic uh, and empirical research that you've presented him with. Yeah, you know, the, the president loves to see data charts. Um, he likes to uh, participate in debate. Um, he will challenge you. 
uh, in ways that economists often are not ready for. Uh, <laughs> one, uh, one example was that we were making a um, chart at one point of how home prices are doing around the country. And um, the president was sure that our data must be wrong because we had a different number for each state and, you know, with color for, you know, hot yeah. or cold markets or right. something like that. And he said that, you know, the Florida is way hotter than our data implied, so our data must be wrong. And so then he went into the nuances of how the data are constructed. And so, so and I, was I, he, was he right or wrong on that count? Did, oh, if, we, well, the, I mean, you were right. We were, we were right on that. And one, did I he, think. but, but did but, he accept uh, your rightness ultimately? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but but it's an example of that that you're you know you're using an accepted source and wait a minute that's so different from what I mm -hmm. think that must be wrong and often that kind of challenge leads to an insight that's really useful uh, <laughs> right it kind of really oh the the way they construct this is you know imputed rent on owner occupied housing or something and that that imputed rent is uh, something they haven't changed in twenty years the formula mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. and. Uh, so anyway, but yes, we interact with him. He sees slides. He responds to them. Uh, he likes debate. Uh, he changes his mind, uh, and he likes to have lots of opinions. Mm -hmm. I, I think some, sometimes when when I watch him operate, I think he might be one of the first people who really understood the genius of the wisdom of crowds idea mm. that he get. So you know, ask ask. A bunch of people what they think about something, and then and then why? Because they're you know if you and I were making a decision about just about anything, uh, then you know we might very much like to know what the other people in the office think about it because they might think of something that we didn't think of right. or so on. Right. And, and so, but yes, he he likes lively debate. He likes to talk, mm -hmm. and he is is really a, a voracious uh, consumer of charts. Mm -hmm. So. I am very curious about the Tax Act um, because it's a big deal. It's uh, so far the signature legislation of the Trump administration. So I'd love you to really just begin with um, your involvement. Um, when you came in, how, um, how early was this a priority of the Trump administration? And how did the work begin to figure out what it was going to be? And then we'll get into what it is and what's in it and what's not. The, the Trump team was all over taxes during the campaign. Our tax plan will greatly simplify the code and reduce the number of brackets from seven to three. And it's really how I got to know them. In addition, because we have strongly capped deductions for the wealthy and closed special interest loopholes, the tax relief will be concentrated on the working and middle class taxpayer. And so, you know, really the, the bones of this plan were, uh, you know, laid out during the campaign. They will receive the biggest benefit, and it won't even be close. This is a working... Thank you. This is a working and middle-class tax relief proposal. The tax bill that ultimately passed, with zero Democratic votes, by the way, was not exactly what Trump had pitched on the campaign trail. So, coming up after the break, what is in it? What's not? And why? And that's exactly the kind of thing that we do and uh, the kind of gory detail that I know that, that you mm -hmm. and, and your fans <laughs> like so much. Freak 
Economics Radio is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example, combining assertive on-road performance with signature Range Rover refinement and commanding all-terrain capability. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable yet. Range Rover Sport redefines sporting luxury an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. Combining dynamic sporting personality with the peerless refinement you expect, Range Rover Sport communicates power, performance, and agility. Advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Redfin. Whether you need to buy or sell a home or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin has got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even the same day with a local Redfin agent. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents get you the best price possible for your home. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Amica Insurance. Amica Insurance is all about empathy. They know your auto, home, and life insurance are more than just policies. Home insurance is about protecting the life you've built. Auto insurance is there to protect you on the road ahead. That's why Amica takes a consultative approach to help protect what matters most to you. They are a customer-owned insurance company that puts your needs first, and their representatives are available 24-7 for claim-related matters. As Amica says, empathy is our best policy. When Kevin Hassett discussed the Trump administration's new tax act back at the American Economic Association conference in Philadelphia, he admitted that the final result wasn't exactly what he or the White House had wanted. This was mostly due to the horse trading necessary to get it through Congress, an especially narrow alley since not a single Democrat in the House or Senate voted for it. There was, before and after the vote, a great deal of debate and vitriol. The Democratic line was that the new tax law rewarded the wealthy at the expense of everyone else, and couldn't come close to paying for all the cuts. The Republicans argued that their tax bill would benefit nearly everyone. It increased the standard deduction, which made tax filing simpler for many and lower for most, although it raised taxes and complicated the process for some. It did not reduce the number of brackets, as Trump had promised during the election, nor did it lower the corporate rate from 35 percent all the way to 15 percent, as he'd promised. But it was lowered drastically to 21 percent. The corporate tax cut was the centerpiece of the plan, both economically and psychically. And at least according to Kevin Hassett, its effect is already being felt. 
because exactly the things that we said would happen if this bill passed right. are happening, right? right. Like the, the people are moving the plants back, the wages are going up. We've got more than 4 million people that have already seen a big pay raise. Critics argue it's way too early to say whether the corporate rate cut will truly accomplish its desired goals. And they say that a lot of the recent headlines about American firms repatriating foreign cash or giving workers raises or bonuses are mostly window dressing or PR stunts. So, okay, let's drill down into why Hassett thinks his plan will work. Let's start with his headline. Yeah, I I think that the the headline is we think that that path to low productivity and low economic growth that we experienced over the last few years is not something that signals a radical departure from the trajectory that we've grown to Mm -hmm. know and love. And I think that the headline really is that uh, we're not heading for a new normal. We're just heading for normal. In other words, the new normal of low growth isn't a foregone conclusion. Or is it? This is a major debate in economics at the moment. On one side are those who think we are in a new normal or a new mediocre, or in econo speak, a state of secular stagnation. It's the idea that a range of factors from low productivity growth to an aging population have conspired to depress growth. You know, I think there's a lot of evidence uh, that that view is incorrect and that it's like a convenient political view, but not an economically sound one. Why does Hassett believe he's right and the doomsayers are wrong? Because, he argues, the old corporate tax rate and complicated tax rules generally gave American firms a strong incentive to move their capital abroad. So they did. Lowering the rate and persuading companies to bring their resources home, he argues, will result in a greater capital deepening, as economists call it. It's just the idea that if you got more machines, then you're more productive because the machines increase your productivity. And that, he argues, will lead to higher wages. If you think about it, the, the second Obama term uh, was a time when we, you would think that we're kind of returning to normal, we're recovering from this terrible financial crisis, things would be getting back to the way they were. Instead, we had this pretty radical anomaly of capital deepening, uh, contributing negatively to productivity growth for the first time since the Second World War. And so what that means is that the sort of depreciation of machines in society was bigger than the investment uh, into machines that people were making. So by your reckoning and in your view, how much of that anomalous and bad scenario was driven by this um, f- this version of global manufacturing mm-hmm. that the U.S. embraced 30, 40 years ago? Well, I think that, that it's, it's the best explanation yeah. for what we're seeing. And that if you want to think about the economics debate, the academic debate or the political debate, uh, because they both kind of were interlaced while the tax bill was hot, then there's one school of thought that thinks that capital's highly mobile. Uh, If you try to tax the highly mobile thing, it moves, and you don't get much revenue from that. And when you do that, the immobile factor ends up bearing the cost. And, And so in that view, we've had this unprecedented slow wage growth and slow economic growth because we tried to tax the mobile thing. The mobile thing ran away. Yeah. Uh, and then the immobile thing, which in this case would be workers, ended up you know, holding the bag. And so the workers saw their wages not go up uh, because the firms were locating the jobs over there and moving the capital that could have driven their productivity up over there. 
And so they were stuck, stuck basically holding the bag. And then the other uh, school of thought is, well, marginal incentives don't really matter that much. Investment's not that responsive to these things. You know, people are going to locate where they're going to locate, but taxes are a small part of that puzzle. And the reason that we're growing slowly is not because the Obama team enacted unwise policies, but just because the whole world is slowing down. Right. So you've just uh, stated and, and the Democratic nothing. position, essentially. The latter position is right, the Democratic position. Right, it's not our position. fault. Right, right. You know, the Martians gave us slow growth, and it's the <laughs> new normal, and, and, and there's nothing we can do about it. Right. Now, uh, I think that, that if you go back and look at, say, you know, my papers on that since graduate school, and I have watched the literature evolve, and I have a very strong idea how this corporate tax bill will work and why it'll be good for the economy. And that um, belief about what the literature says was, you know, not a partisan thing. It wasn't, you know, that, that if, if President Clinton had, had, if it was a President Clinton and she had asked me to go on TV and talk about the tax bill, then that's, right. I would have said the same things. And for that matter, and President Obama said had, for years a, that he wanted, wanted to. Wanted a 28% uh, rate. And, and uh, Luigi Zangales actually uh, it was an off-the-record lunch, and so I've never spoken about it, but Luigi Zangales, uh, I guess, uh, blogged about uh, at the time that he saw me have lunch with President Obama, and I had Obama convinced to be pretty aggressive about corporate tax policy based on the science, based mm. on the fact that it's the right thing. And um, he, he was contrasting President Obama's response to uh, my analysis to that of some some of the economists that served him, <laughs> who were you know vocal right. critics of, of the tax bill. But I think that it's working the way we expected. You mean vocal critics now, or vocal critics during the debate, at least. I, I think yeah. that that the vocal critics are going to probably be harder and harder to find, assuming that the thing works according to plan. How uh, strong a prediction are you willing to make? Whether it's GDP, you know, on a GDP dimension, whether it's on employment. And wage, I guess employment we, we're not so concerned about right now. It's pretty good. But wage dimension and so on. There's an easy short answer, which is that we're not in the new normal. Uh, right. It's my belief we're just back to normal. And uh, the growth rate, so our growth rate forecast for the next 10 years is below the median economic report of the president forecast, but significantly above the low growth, pessimistic outlook of the Obama administration in their last four years. Right. You know, their economists are arguing that, you know, we're on pretty weak ground. They must believe that because that was the ground that they sort of established. <laughs> uh, I think they genuinely believe it, but, you know, we're hoping to prove them wrong. And I think that the data so far are doing that. Even though the new tax bill lowers taxes for most Americans, it hasn't resonated very broadly. Why? One reason, to be sure, is that the president himself isn't very popular, but also many of the bill's intended benefits are necessarily long-term. A lot of the near-term changes that were up for discussion, changes that Trump had promised on the campaign trail, didn't come through. A plan to deduct childcare expenses, an expansion of the earned income tax credit, a plan to increase taxes on carried interest, the money earned by private equity firms and hedge funds. The Republican tax law wound up including none of these. Moreover, the corporate rate cut has been widely seen as better for firms and shareholders than actual workers. Kevin Hassett disagrees, and he comes from the very kind of place with wage stagnation and job loss that powered Trump's election. We were growing up in a town called Greenfield, Massachusetts, a wonderful town, people should go visit it, uh, that was experiencing at the time 
you know, a kind of depression because the Greenfield Tap and Die, which had previously employed thousands of people, was down to almost no, nobody. Uh, there were paper mills along the Connecticut River on either side of town that were shutting down. Uh, and, uh, you know, most of the kids that I grew up with were pretty pessimistic about, well, what am I going to do with myself? Where, you know, and, and, and most people ended up leaving town. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I can remember going back you know, a few years after I graduated from college and wandering around town and, you know, half the stores were closed. And uh, there's this uh, video game called Fallout. Do you know this video game? Uh, Friends, your future may not be as secure as you think. Where will you be when the atomic bombs fall? It's basically a post-apocalyptic game where you Mm. wander around and Explore a world, and and and, uh, and that's what it looked like. And, and, and well, no, it, it, well, it was, but it's post-apocalyptic. But they, but they even at some point, I remember reading a news story that the producers of Fallout, like maybe the third version of it, um, were using the paper mill that's right across the river from my dad's house as a set. So they went there and they had taken all these photos so that like when people explore the Turner's Falls paper mill in that video game, if they do, I'm I'm sure your listeners of all people (laughs) are probably... uh, you know, fallout. But anyway, so that they would be at, at that place, and and I still go home. My dad's still there, and we walk around, and um, you know, the, the town's on a better trajectory now. But but I think that as I went to uh, college, that one of the things that sort of I was focused on uh, in my own studies was, you know, why is it that places filled with talented folks? you know, smart, talented folks like Greenfield, Massachusetts can suddenly just sort of hit this, you know, equilibrium where the everybody, most everybody's leaving, no businesses want to be there. You know, why did Greenfield fall off the map? Now, Uh, is the short answer to that, uh, you know, whether it's textiles, whether it's plastic, is it just about um, offshoring and and manufacturing elsewhere? Is that not really the big component of the greenfield? I think that basically for places that there are two possible Nash equilibria. A Nash equilibrium named after the mathematician John Nash of a beautiful mind fame is a concept from game theory. It describes a situation whereby multiple participants have reached a stable equilibrium and conclude, given the choices of the other participants, that there's no rational reason to do anything different. To Hassett, it's a helpful framework for thinking about the economic vitality of different communities, like Silicon Valley at the moment, uh, one Nash equilibrium is that everybody goes there because everybody else is going. Or like Greenfield, Massachusetts. And the <laughs> other is nobody goes there because nobody else is going. <laughs> and that you can flip from one to the other. Right. Uh, and uh, so the question is, what makes those flips happen? And that's something that you know I've done a lot of work on over the years. Which is why one of Hassett's favorite parts of the tax bill, something that hasn't gotten much attention, is financial support for what are called opportunity zones. I think it's it's one of the things that in the end we'll look back on as the biggest deals in the in the tax yeah. bill, uh, because what it's done is it's it's set up a vehicle uh, that people can use to make a difference in distressed communities. It's made it so that there's a new and innovative organizational form, which will which could be set up by 
mutual fund company or mm -hmm. a private equity firm, or you, you know, you and I could could set one up, and um, it becomes a pool of resources that. Uh, can invest in distressed communities and not pay taxes until you take the money out of the distressed community. And the sort of key insight is that you could take your unrealized capital gain and roll oh, it into no a distressed community fund. And then when you take the money out, you'll pay full capital gain. Uh, but you can start to try to make a difference right now uh, without having a big tax consequence. And I talked about how I think that distressed communities are a bad Nash equilibrium where nobody goes right. because nobody thinks anyone else is going to go. And I think that everybody really wants to make a difference. And so I think that the Opportunity Zone could become a kind of social norm mm. where people feel like some share of their wealth needs really to give back. And that if that happens, then you get the new Nash equilibrium where everyone's racing to right. get there before everybody right. else does. And so I'm very optimistic about this. Now, granted, it, it's it's something of an experiment, right. uh, well, but I think that there's a well, lot of smart what, thinking behind that's it. That's what economists are always preaching, and other social scientists is let's use tax code and, and different law to start small experiments mm -hmm. and try to scale them up. So, in the Tax Act, is that a Kevin Hassett special? Is that there because of you? Oh, you should never claim credit or take blame. And so, but but I, uh, you know, I, I think that if anyone asked me about how that would work, then I would have said, you yeah. know, here's how it works, right. and and here's why I think that it might have a positive yeah. effect on those communities. The Opportunity Zone experiment is projected to cost the federal government about $1.6 billion over 10 years, which may sound like a lot, but keep in mind the overall tax bill, with that huge cut in corporate rates, is estimated to cost the federal government at least a trillion dollars over 10 years. And the Trump administration has already spent and plans to spend many more billions in areas like defense and infrastructure. Increasing the deficit like this, critics argue, during a time of high corporate profits and nearly full employment is irresponsible and hypocritical. Republicans, after all, spent eight years blasting the Obama administration for its deficit spending, much of which went into recovery from the Great Recession. Trump himself routinely criticized President Obama on those grounds, and he promised his own economic plans would be deficit neutral. Between the Tax Act and the new budget, uh, there's a lot of spending going on. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious what happened to the old GOP fiscal conservative um, reputation. Well, I think that the president rightly prioritized a couple of major problems uh, in his first year. And I think if you look at what's happened uh, to the Defense Department, that you could argue that it's in a similar uh, difficult state and requires a lot of spending. If you look at the percentage of airplanes that can't fly because they don't have the parts and so on. And, and so I think that in the first year, it makes sense to prioritize, uh, given that there's a only a, so much time on the legislative calendar to get things done and so on. But, you know, I've written extensively over my career on the positive economic effects of fiscal consolidation. And uh, that means that in the end, you know, in the medium and long term, that deficits do matter a lot. And uh, to the extent that growth disappoints, then, you know, having uh, pursuing some, some kind of uh, long run uh, consolidation is something that will be inevitable. You know, it would just be a question of which administration will have to do it. Okay, 
Today, we got to hear Kevin Hassett's defense of the new Republican tax bill. Coming up next time on Freakonomics Radio, as promised, the view from the other side of the aisle. The overwhelming evidence is that the trickle-down magic beanstalk beans argument is just nonsense. I was in the White House for all eight years of the Obama administration for most of the second half as chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. Gotcha. Okay, so when Donald Trump talks about the swamp, you are the swamp, Jason. (laughs) If this is a a once-in-a-generation opportunity to change the tax code, all we did is just go pile on to a problem that we already knew existed. And what a fellow Republican would have done differently with the new tax law. The worst thing is something that isn't in it. The Battle of the CEA Chairs, that's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Freakonomics Radio is produced by WNYC Studios and Dubner Productions. This episode was produced by Greg Rosalski. Our staff also includes Allison Hockenberry, Merritt Jacob, Stephanie Tam, Max Miller, Harry Huggins, and Andy Meisenheimer. The music you hear throughout the episode was composed by Luis Guerra. You can subscribe to Freakonomics Radio on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You should also check out our archive at Freakonomics.com, where you can stream or download every episode we've ever made. You can also read the transcripts and find links to the underlying academic research. We can also be found on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at radio at Freakonomics.com. Thank you so much for listening. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.